Well, we began a series. Don't ask me how long the series will be, but a series in Ephesians. And we began there in chapter one, the opening three verses, last Lord's Day. And we spoke about eyes being wide open and how this letter makes us open our eyes actually very wide and brings to our attention truth that uh, we not have known else and shows us things that take us into the very depths of God's being and the mystery of his will. So we saw last time that this is thoroughly Trinitarian, that the whole nature of it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there in those first 14 verses, breathtaking stuff. It just rolls on. And Paul's sort of stream of thought there by divine inspiration just, just carries him on. And he writes and writes and writes again. Well, tonight we're looking at verses four to six. Well, we just, who can do justice to these verses in this chapter here? And the title of the sermon is this, straightforward enough, Election, a Mystery to Rejoice in. Yet that title can seem a little difficult to get our minds around because no profounder truth than this election that we read chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There's something indeed, having predestined us to adoption as sons in verse 5 and Perhaps we could also just look down there at uh, verse 11, that we're in destined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, there it is. And yet, there it is. And Christians and good Christians over the years have wrestled with this and have sometimes shaken their heads over it and have preferred not to hear it and uh, sometimes uh, have objected most strongly to it and disputed with it. wish that Paul had never written it, or that if he did write it, he didn't mean it. And we could somehow gloss over it, ignore it, forget it, uh, and move on. And yet there it is, isn't it, in Scripture. And here's a letter, I said last week, that here is the counsel of God. There's not the whole counsel of God. There's more than Ephesians in the book of Scripture. And there are many things as well to say alongside what we're going to say this evening. And there's not time to say it all. We say that at other places and other times. We're just trying to say what we find here. And the first heading is this. This is a reason for praise. Well, I don't say that uh, because I've discovered that myself. I say that because that's what the apostle is doing here. And the whole note on which he speaks is is one of giving glory to God. That's why the superlatives. And that's why the, the constant references to the praise of the glory of his grace comes in. But actually, this, this is doxology. This is praising God, this opening, this eye-catching, attention-grabbing opening. Whatever else is going to follow, and there's some immensely practical things. It's not lost on us that we are to be there holy and without blame before him in love. And how to be holy without blame is going to take up a fair few chapters of Ephesians later on. But here we find him speaking of, well, no, he's rejoicing in, isn't he, the very purposes of God. And he's not being provocative in that. And he's not setting us all a, a problem which 
doesn't seem to have, as we contemplate one truth and another truth in Scripture, uh, a ready-to-hand solution. And yet, this is revealed truth. This is doctrine. It's not only here in Ephesians, it's elsewhere in Scripture. And I suspect for quite a few of us that we've wrestled with this and the implications of this and perhaps are still wrestling with it and still trying to come to some kind of accommodation with it and to find ourselves in the passage alongside Paul, who is blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. And he traces that spiritual blessing from somewhere within the greater mysterious will of God, that purpose to predestine, that purpose to choose people, ordinary people, very insignificant people, in fact, sinners, to choose them in his son to receive the things that we receive. And he goes on to speak about all that they receive. And the Lord willing, from weeks ahead, we're looking at the redemption through his blood. And Christ, he's bringing us sort of through from the heights of this mystery of God's will and eternal counsels to the very focus upon his son. And if we then want to know, well, how did that happen? Then he tells us about the Holy Spirit. And it all sort of fits together and it's all one long sort of passage of doxology. And that we're meant to take away from this, not fear and trembling or confusion or anger, but actually to wonder, a mystery. Yes, we can't fathom all of this. We can't pretend to be experts in this. This is well beyond my pay grade. And to resolve all the the tensions or the implications of it, I'm afraid you and I are going to have to wait for eternity to reveal those things. But for myself, well, curious, curious journey. Pastors and preachers, well, like all of us here, we've all had curious, curious journeys. We've been here and we've been there. We've had less theological experience or lack of it, or that theological experience or lack of it, and have had to come to the conclusions we did, perhaps hold positions now that we didn't hold then, and change our minds on things as we traveled along, and as we wrestled with Scripture. And so, curiously there, I look back to my conversion. Wow. I couldn't explain that for myself. I found myself converted. <laughs> uh, that didn't come from me. And uh, that, that left me there, actually, and for a fair few years, quite, quite perplexed. How come? How come that that which came from above, that was just supernatural, and I sort of knew it, and I knew that something had happened to me that I hadn't looked for and that I hadn't been even wanting that uh, surprised me and overcame me, overpowered my resistance and opposition. And I felt very much like Lot, who was almost protesting with the angel up to the last moment, but was sort of dragged. They seized him and just pulled him pulled him in. I felt that had happened to me, that I'd been pulled in, and that something had overpowered me in doing that. And I thought that must that was God. That was God. And though I couldn't have articulated it, and I couldn't have placed it within a theological setting or given it any kind of a wider context. And yet the, the implications of it, I have to say for myself, were, were troubling as I realized, well, 
why doesn't it happen for other people? Has it happened to me? What, why me? Why, why not them? Why? And how, how does this all work? And, and it can be very perplexing. And not a few Christians have somewhere within that have, have found it hard work uh, and maybe have, have stopped and needed a bit of time out as they try to get their finite minds around some infinite truth and try to get near to what the counsels of God are. And I can remember writing things where I, I was mightily perplexed myself. Why so many people seem to fall away? We're in a church where we had loads of people come in. And we had loads of people go out and they might be baptized and they all look very cheerful and hopeful. And we saw nothing of them. And you thought, well, it looks as if some people can become Christians and then cease to be Christians and to wrestle with that. But then we keep reading scripture, and certainly for myself, it's reading John's gospel. And yeah, you have to surrender, in my view, you, you have to surrender to it. And there is this election, there is this choice that God exercises, and it doesn't do any damage or hindrance to his love and his purposes, to all of his character. Paul can express it here and not think, wait a minute, what am I saying here? This is going to upset a lot of people. Can I work this out myself? He doesn't actually feel the necessity to do that. And we have to offer ourselves up, We don't we, there, to the will of God and to his teaching. Some preach this, I would say, too aggressively and uh, sort of with a vehemence that uh, doesn't really become what the apostle is saying here. I find him being aggressive in this. I, I just find him caught up in a sense of wonder. And I think that's what we're meant to do. We're caught up in a sense of wonder, not with all the questions answered, not with everything perfectly lined up, but with a sense of wonder and the mystery of it all. Yes, but an amazement. Newton didn't write amazing grace for no reason. It's amazing grace. And Paul seems to be very much with Newton in this and how he expresses it here. But some, I guess, are too aggressive and too, too combative in it and riding roughshod over people in, in that. And uh, that sometimes it can make us back off a little bit from them in that way. Some are still fighting with the, the Roman Catholic Church of Luther's day and uh, are still sort of warring there in, in, a, in a manner that uh, well, perhaps then uh, had, had its place. And it's not as if the Roman Catholic Church today has really greatly improved much over the Catholic Church of Luther's day. And, that may not quite uh, be where the Council of Trent was and would probably quite like to back off some of the uh, infallibility that it has uh, sort of invested in some of those comments and would probably prefer to, to, to ditch much of it. But there it is, and it's still no friend to true evangelical truth. But some seem to perhaps be overly aggressive as though they're fighting some, some battle of, of yesteryear. Maybe, and really here I'm only speculating a little, maybe the doctrine was less controversial once upon a time. Maybe in, in the light of well, what I read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the way that God chose Israel. Well, he said it, didn't he, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It wasn't because that they were somehow a bigger nation and caught God's attention and he thought he'd better get in on this and kind of give them some preferment. No, it wasn't a bit of that at all. And, and he tells us that, doesn't he, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. He goes on to tell them they're the blunt truth for you were the least of all peoples. You had nothing going for you, actually. There's no 
commendable feature. Nothing made you stand out from other peoples whatsoever. But because the Lord loves you and because you will keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. And that stream of thought hadn't always worked positively on Israel of old that and still this truth today can work in a very negative way to actually make people arrogant and think that they don't need to be holy. You'll notice after Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8, it goes on to talk about being holy and being ruthless with sin. That, that was previous to that. So some have twisted this doctrine to their own destruction in that way. But there it was. There was Israel. There was for the people that Paul was addressing already a handle on this truth and the treatment that they as a nation had received. And they not have respected it, and many of them were downright disobedient to it. And Paul has plenty to say on that in other places. But it was it was there, it was a feature of life. And perhaps, perhaps in those days too, we think different times than we live in, and where these things perhaps were more accepted, that people had less of a sense of self-determination and agency. But you were a slave. Well, what agency did you have as a slave? What kind of will could you exercise there? What kind of, of future were you able to fashion for yourself? You're in a place in society and that's where you were. And so within that, that God would work in ways that were his prerogative to work in a day when far less opportunity, far less agency that people had. Well, that made sense. That could make sense. And perhaps too, when in the apostolic age, there was all this evidence of miracles, and signs and wonders, and that the apostles came to your town, not that other town, and that they were there. And there was a singularity about being there, the right place at the right time, and seeing extraordinary and by God's intention, eye-opening miracles. Well, that too might have made it perhaps easier to see that this, this is God has kind of chosen us for this, that we, we were in the right place at the right time and were favoured in a remarkable way to see these things. Well, perhaps, just perhaps. But in our day and our age, we have to submit to the scripture and say there's a great mystery here. There's a purpose of God that defies our uh, explanation or some kind of uh, easy kind of description that will satisfy all the questions we have. The good pleasure of his will. And we know this, and I can say this from my own, my own testimony there. Well, no one's saved without this, friends. Nobody is saved without this. Whatever we make of this doctrine, I humbly submit to us that we wouldn't be here in this place now wouldn't be singing the hymns that we've just been singing. You wouldn't be sitting here with an open Bible unless God had done something in you, done something in me, and done something actually very powerful, very remarkable, very supernatural. My second heading, Paul knew it. (laughs) Paul knew it. He was making sense of how God had dealt with him and was simply reporting back what he himself had discovered, that he knew that he, Paul the Pharisee, well, there he was, Hebrew the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been writing this. He shouldn't actually be anywhere spiritually. He, he should have been condemned. He should have had no hope written over him, though he, he thought he was the man, of course, and 
got great confidence in the flesh once upon a time, but he doesn't anymore. And he realizes that uh, this, this wasn't him, that this was God, that he was that debtor to mercy alone, and that God had done something. There he is, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Not me, not my idea. I didn't think this. I, in fact, he says, I thought the absolute opposite of it. I was directly opposed to it. Anything that came with the teaching about Jesus Christ, I fought it. And I wanted other people to fight it. Whenever I found people who supported it, well, I tried to have them put to death. And I approved of the murder of Stephen and other of these saints. And so he looked at himself in that way with the, the help of divine light. And he spoke. Well, this, this, this wasn't me. This was not my doing here. And he says it elsewhere, Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That, that's how that happened, he said. This, this wasn't man, wasn't me, not somebody else who kind of gave me this title or said, well, how about joining, becoming an apostle and teach these things? He goes on to tell them, doesn't he, in this very letter that, uh, that actually he, he, he was nowhere near this. Verse 11 in Galatians 1, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor as I taught it, it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That's where I was, he says. That's, that's who I was. That defined me. That was my life's purpose. And then there's a but. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That this was not human intervention that I hadn't uh, kind of spent a lot of time with Peter or James, John, those who were pillars in the church. Oh, he said, I went there later. I said, I went there actually very kind of humbly just to hear from them and gain from them that, yes, I was running well. I was the, the apostle to the Gentiles as there was Peter, the apostle there to the, the circumcision. And so he describes that's, that's who I was. And I'm not that anymore. And this pleased God, and this was his will. And indeed, it, it needed to be something because I was so steeped in it. I was beyond my contemporaries. I was more exceedingly zealous for it than, than them. That's why it was so incredible to people when they heard I'd been converted. I couldn't believe it because they said he was persecuting us just the other day, and now he's preaching that gospel he once tried to destroy. And he tells them, doesn't he, there, that uh, they glorify God in me. They recognize that this is God, that that work has been done by him. And there in the Acts of the Apostles on frequent occasions, he relates that. And he explains what happened to him and how Jesus was revealed in him, how this came from above. So Paul knew it. He knew that just as the devil has his goods intact, has his people in his possession, that it takes a stronger than he to come to have those goods released. It was Paul who was actually 
caught up there in, in something where the devil really had him in his grip and where religion was not helping him but destroying him. And God overpowered him and that grip was released. And we have the Apostle Paul now instead of Saul of Tarsus breathing murderous threats against the church. And there he is astonished. You always get that sense with him. And I think with this doctrine, which we cannot properly fathom or bottom it in that way, that we have to be astonished. That's what he was. He was astonished. saying, I'm astonished that I'm here. I'm astonished that I'm not uh, a, a preacher of Judaism, still zealous, still sat at Gamaliel's feet and still persecuting the church. I'm amazed at that. And it was God. It, it was him. This has no other explanation, he is saying. And so, so readily ascribes all to Christ, doesn't he? We noted that last week. Did I top them up? I think I got 46, uh, at least 46. I'm not going to claim to be the, the final vote counter here or anything else, but 46 mentions of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus as Lord. In his letter, he just keeps referring to him because it's natural for him to do that. Can't find any other explanation for anything he can't find. Uh, sufficient reason to implore other than to relate it all to Christ, to center all our kind of pursuit of holiness in him. Because as far as Paul was concerned, it was all about him. It was all about the Lord Jesus and Paul himself. Well, I've been crucified with him, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's it, it's said and done. So all you need to know about me, Paul is saying, it's all about him, you see. And whatever I am, whatever you're hearing, whatever you're seeing, it's, it's all actually about him. And that sense of wonder of what happened to him on the road to Damascus, and how he was overpowered there, and how he finds himself an apostle, not for men, he says, not through man. This, this wasn't uh, my uh, kind of idea, this, or I spoke with Peter, and he said, well, why don't you become an apostle? No. Nobody like that. No other person laid hands on me or equipped me. That this this came from above. Overturned me. Overwhelmed me. Undid me. And now I find myself uh, preaching that gospel I once tried to destroy. And that's this doctrine. <laughs> it's it's a great mystery how this works. Why here? Why you? Why me? Why indeed? But something something. In the heart of God, something there. And something which doesn't then kind of just treat everybody else as, as non-entities and also runs. Something which actually, when the Lord Jesus met such people, he wept over them. Think of that, he wept over them. And that's not how sometimes this doctrine's preached, is it? That Christ wept over them. How can he weep over them when he, he knew that they were, in a sense, never going to believe in him? Well, he did. And something of that's got to be in us. If we're going to be biblical Christians, we've got to, Weep over the lost. We've got to weep over those who are impenitent and hard-hearted. God takes no pleasure in their death. You believe you me, and that's in scripture, isn't it there? When we survey ourselves, we have to say, this is, this is grace. This is all proceeding from God. And it found us, found me, found you, left me here as a preacher in a pulpit. I tell you this, I didn't see this coming. I really, really didn't. I didn't see this coming that I would be standing here preaching these things to congregations and going to other places and preaching these things. How did this happen? Well, it didn't start with me, this one. This wasn't an idea that I dreamt of. Pretty hesitating I was in 
my early days of preaching and ministry. Yet here I am, by the grace of God. There you are, by the grace of God, in Sunday school teaching or out open air preaching or giving out leaflets in places. I, I humbly submit you probably didn't see that coming either. You didn't see there would be a day when, when you'd be that. Lovely talking to a, a brother, um, recently getting to know him a little bit there in a not too far away church. Oh, he said, I was an out and out atheist. Out and out atheist. Ah, uh, well. You know, things changed <laughs> under new management. And, uh, well, not now as an elder in a church and a preacher and only too happy to be that. And I'm sure he would be here in this passage saying, that's me too. That's this, this came from somewhere else. This was supernatural and spiritual. And I really, really could never have seen myself here. My rights shouldn't be here. Should still be an atheist. My rights, any of us should still be whatever it was we were before we were converted. My next heading, God is too small without this truth. God is too small without this truth that somewhere within it that we take away from him something and give ourselves too much if, if we, in a sense, rob him of this and say, no, that's, that's not how we're going to allow you to work in this. That it, it isn't about us getting it, working it out. It's about him working us out. Getting us. It's about him, as I've used the words already, overpowering us, overcoming us. It's about him drawing us, opening our eyes, revealing to us. And we owe our debt in that direction. Not about us recognizing a good deal, good deal when we saw it or shaking hands as this is the best offer that we've, that we've ever seen. And there's nothing else better there. So we'll, we'll close on the deal there. It gives us too much power and expects too much of our reasoning, our willing, our choosing, our recognition. It it gives us too much. And scripture says, you haven't got that. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And you haven't got that. It's not going for you that. You need help before you can see aright, think aright, will aright, and desire aright. And that is God's gift to us. It takes too much power from him that we have his power instead of him having that power. and We have his rights, which we've taken to be our right. And scripture sort of prizes that out of our hands and, and says, no, there's mystery in it. And it's well beyond our explanation. And the apostle doesn't give us an explanation here. And you'd be hard pressed to find an explanation in, in scripture in that way. But yet that's where we are. We make God too small without this truth. We make ourselves too big with this truth. We get him out of a biblical proportion and we get ourselves out of a, a biblical proportion. And so we realize that it's not something that we do. It's actually something already been done and that there upon the cross, there upon the cross, that's why Paul is going to not stay with this for the entire Ephesians. He's now going to take us to Christ, isn't he? There upon the cross, that is where these things really came into focus and God's great purpose for us is to be seen, to be seen unmistakably. And there we are, we are accepted in the beloved. This good pleasure of his will, this adoption, why to be sons by Jesus Christ to himself, that there was in Christ that which God intended for us. And so my final heading is, it's all mercy. It, it's all mercy. And uh, we struggle with that. 
And it's difficult to just always hear that and say, well, why mercy to us, not mercy to others? We can't answer all of that. But we're meant to be in our own situation, reflecting on that and saying, well, however this worked, whatever the deeper plan of God is, whatever this choosing and this election is all about, there was mercy. And that mercy found you and that mercy found me. And it didn't find us that we saw somehow that uh, we, we had some kind of trade-off here and transaction to do, or that some teaching that we, we had to believe. It was a person, wasn't it, we had to believe in. It was Jesus Christ. It was him. That's, that's what we saw. And the mercy was revealed to us in him. And we closed with him, didn't we? That there was a person-to-person experience. That we were not dealing with some abstract formula or kind of sitting there and reasoning this thing out. There was a cry from the heart. There was a need, an urgent need that we became slowly or quickly aware of and which took us to him because we could see in him. We weren't theologians and we couldn't have found scriptures to explain it all. But we found in him and him only what we need, that we were taken to him. There was something about him so attractive, so necessary, so important, so urgent, so vital that we knew it was about him and it was about our eternal destiny and that it was about him where we would spend eternity. And however that thought, whatever language we had and however God worked in us, whatever illustrations he used or whatever, experience or lack of it to date that we had that was all sort of brought into the process and then we found ourselves well against our will at times against anything that we had thought or the script had written for our own lives we we found ourselves compelled to honor him compelled to come to him because we couldn't not because we knew that we didn't that we perish in our sins we knew that whatever Questions lay unanswered, whatever lay ahead, however difficult this road would be, what it might require of us, that we needed him and we had to have him to be our saviour and our Lord. We fell into his arms and there to us, whatever was happening beyond our comprehension, there was a most attractive and the most beautiful Christ. There was an irresistible Christ who was exactly the Christ that we needed. And like the Ethiopian eunuch after he met Philip, preached Jesus to him as he was wrestling with Isaiah 52, 53, and how then Philip told him about the Lord Jesus. And there was water, wasn't there? What's to prevent me from being baptized? And if you believe with all your heart, you may believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He's the son of God. They go down into the water and then the Ethiopian, Philip's taken from him, sees him no more. He's taken to Azotus. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. He takes that rejoicing. We think there's some distance as the church is founded in Ethiopia and grows and, well, is part actually of a, an ongoing story there. So there is much mystery in this, much unknowable. There's a part there, isn't there, of God penetrable to us, something in his immensity and in his glory that we simply cannot fathom. But we find that what has come out of that 
and has met with us has been mercy, overwhelming mercy that we did not deserve, that we weren't even looking for some time, but then we discovered we most needed. And all that mercy was summed up in that person, Jesus Christ, and most particularly summed up in his death. And there was God already, already ahead of us, wasn't he? Doing something for us before we ever knew there was something that we needed. There was a Christ who had died for the sin of his people. And there we were, undone, lost sinners, whatever age we were, whatever understanding we had. And we saw that we needed him above all else. And we stayed seeing it, haven't we, friends? We stayed seeing it. We haven't, we haven't changed our mind on him. We've had our battles and our struggles. We've fought our passage through, but we've not lost any respect for him. Why, I might say it, might I, if I can speak for us all that's gained in respect. He's more now than even when we first knew him. There's more to him. There's more grace. Prayers he's answered. What troubles he's brought you and me through. And we just say, it was mercy all. (laughs) It is mercy all, immense and free. Oh, my God, it found out me. And, well, Charles Wesley will put it better than I can put it. And so will Augustus Top Lady. So there we are. We look at a supernatural event. And we try to share with the apostle here the amazement, the wonder at it, that we sort of shake our heads and say, this this is just amazing, that you and I are here, and there we are, we're going on to heaven, and that hymn we just sang assures us that God's not going to forfeit his purpose or forego it or sever our souls from his love. You, You can be sure in that. And we cry for help. By God's grace, now we're here, still traveling on. So as we ponder that, and well, I can only really just give you a few pointers and just say, out of my depth here, friends, out of my depth, and like any preacher has to say, with humility, we're out of our depth here. But we know that without this, without God at work, without God having mercy, without God doing something for you and for me, we simply wouldn't be here and we wouldn't be going to heaven. And we wouldn't be singing these hymns of praise and you wouldn't be listening to sermons given by preachers. You wouldn't find comfort, joy, praying to your heavenly father, except through him who has adopted us to himself through Jesus Christ. So we press on and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen.